BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends. Welcome to Unsiloed, the show that busts the echo chambers. If you dig hearing opposing perspectives about big issues from a point of mutual respect, if you like debate but love light, not heat, welcome home. Hey, friends, amigos, fellow countrymen, people of all wonderful walks of life, professionals, etc., It's great to be with you today. Well, just when I thought that there wasn't going to be anything to talk about, there's lots to talk about this week in the world of overlap between business and marketing and politics and culture and everything. We're living in a very interesting world where a lot of these things get sloshed around together. So without further ado, we've got three topics we thought were interesting this week. And uh, you saw the same in our unsiloed letter, newsletter rather. If you're not a subscriber, you should sign up to that. Just go to blackbrown.us and Sign up for the unsiloed newsletter. Anyway, in no particular order, or actually that's not true, in the order that they were presented in the newsletter, the three uh, ideas that we had to discuss today, one having to do with the Dodgers, one having to do with the famed, fabled metaverse of old, and the third having to do with our friends at the Bullseye Corporation, better known as Target. So here goes. Anyone who is a baseball fan. And I am not, I confess, even though I played the game, you know, backyard player in, uh, in my youth, I could never get into watching baseball on television. I just, I found it really boring. And, and even the in-game experience is a lot of fun communally and there's a lot of great food uh, and, you know, that kind of thing. It's a fun time. But the actual, you know, viewing of the game itself or experiencing the game outside of playing it was never my cup of tea. Now, I know that I am certainly a minority, and it is America's pastime. Is it still America's pastime, or is that football? I don't know. Football with a U. Uh, But nevertheless, very popular sport and millions of fans everywhere. So if you're in that universe of baseball fans, no doubt you heard about all of the consternation and controversy around my own hometown's Los Angeles Dodgers. If you happen to miss that because you were very wisely avoiding uh, media and social media specifically, all of this revolves around uh, Pride Night, which is going to be upcoming at the LA Dodgers uh, Stadium in a couple of weeks, and of course coincides with uh, the month of June, which in the corporate slash marketing universe is now called Pride Month. Um, We've talked in the past about how we feel about purpose-built 
you know, months to designate special attention to particular groups. And there's good and bad about both of those things. We won't rehash that argument here. But anyway, all of this is coinciding with Pride Month, which kicks off on June 1st. And um, anyway, this story is sort of mired within that, uh, that context. Anyway, the Dodgers had originally disinvited one of the groups that they were going to honor at Pride Night. They then got a lot of pushback from that group and their supporters and decided to reinvite that group uh, to the um, to the awards ceremony. It's kind of an awards thing that they're that they're doing um, at their uh, pride night. So were invited, disinvited, reinvited was basically the the progression here. And to participate in the awards, I should say, this particular group I have come to now know has actually been present at the uh, pride night for for a number of years, but they weren't being awarded anything, I guess. Um, in previous years, so maybe they didn't actually center, they weren't center stage. So um, having said that, this group, which was invited, disinvited, reinvited, when they got finally reinvited, then things really kind of blew up. Now, you need a little bit of context on this one, uh, insofar as this particular group is called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And it is a group of men who dress like Catholic religious sisters, Catholic nuns. Um, for what they would they call as you know activism and satire. That's how they would define it uh, on their materials. To the great to the greatest degree that I can understand how they position themselves, they say it is a satirical activist group in order to drive uh, attention to um, issues of the LGBTQ and trans community, and they. Um, uh, you know, do with the monies that they raise or uh, visibility that they raise. They do um, give charitable gifts to organizations that they are, I'm sure, supportive of or ideologically aligned with. So that's basically the size of the 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 issue. Now, what's happened since then has been uh, a tremendous amount of pushback from players, from fans, from religious organizations, uh, perhaps most reasonably of which is the Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles, who pushed back pretty strenuously on this um, re-invitation for specifically the purposes that they felt, uh, in my opinion, I'll foreshadow, uh, is you know largely in line with theirs, that they were being specifically set upon uh, by this particular group's type of activism and satire. So um, lots of controversy, lots of discussion. What do I make of this? Well, it'll be no surprise people who listen to the show and who know me, if you do happen to know me, that I am a Catholic. I'm a fairly devout Catholic. Uh, And so for me, things that touch on faith are important um, because they're a big part of how I view the world. Now, having said that, I also recognize that I am a member of a church that has 1.5 billion adherents that is 2000 years old, that is in, you know, 200 plus, well, all over the world in every country, um, even in, you know, countries that are not friendly to faith like China and, you know, available for its uh, purposes in hundreds of different languages and cultures. So because of that kind of breadth and spread of influence, the Catholic faith is also the subject of a lot of fun poking and, you know, uh, satire to use that word appropriately. And it's not that I'm okay or not okay with that, but I understand when that actually comes up. There's, you know, it's a, in some ways to the degree that it wouldn't be something that's in the conversation, it would signify it's sort of lack of relevance. Um, so I get some of that. 
The other thing that I also understand is that um, being a cr- anti-Christian or anti-Catholic prejudice is the last acceptable prejudice in our very, um, you know, socially careful culture that we now live in. It really is the only acceptable uh, prejudice or bigotry that's left to be had. There is constant, constant making fun of Christianity, of Christians, especially of the Catholic Church, lots of mockery, or just, you know, ignorance that is tough to see. You know, you see this on television shows when, you know, somebody's playing the part of a priest, uh, and like, it's clear that to somebody who knows that he's not a priest, he's not wearing the, the right stuff, he's not saying the right things at the right moments, you know, different things like that. But it also comes out in far uglier ways where, where the depictions oftentimes of uh, clergy, etc., in popular media are sinister or, you know, the bad guys or whatever. I mean, that happens quite a bit. And look, there are also, um, you know, the cases from a nonfiction standpoint where there has been a lot of coverage of things that involve the church that have been, um, you know, certainly not flattering because they were not supposed to be, right? So places where the church has fallen down or church leadership has fallen down, most notably in this country, about 20 some odd years ago, with the beginning of what ended up being a fairly significant scandal around um, the abuse of minors. So you can't make light of that stuff because in some cases that coverage is, of course, warranted and necessary to bring to light things that, you know, should be talked about no matter how uncomfortable they make anybody feel. But by and large in the popular culture, you know, if you're being, if you're Catholic, you're used to people, you know, kind of poking fun and doing things. The reason that I think my opinion on this is that it goes a step completely too far and why it's bad for a business and specifically a brand is the placement or focus of satire, if we're to take this group at their word, entirely on a single religion, and that being Catholicism. These men in drag dress up as religious sisters. And look, there are a very, very small minority of religious sisters that are not Catholic in the world. I'm not saying they're the only ones, but it is a tiny fraction. The vast majority, for thousands of years of religious sisters have been Catholic. And so it's really easy to make the one-to-one connection that what you're trying to do by having these outlandish, you know, religious habits and, you know, makeup and all this other stuff. And, and you know, it goes further than that. Um, the names that they give themselves, um, you know, they're all, they have double entendre, innuendo, sexually provocative things. I mean, it's really a mess, frankly. And the focus of this group on one faith specifically for their satire is, in my opinion, what makes it completely untenable from a corporate or brand association standpoint. It's completely untenable. My own personal opinion is that this group verges on being a hate group. But even if I didn't think that, I could make a very credible case to any corporate or brand owner that an association with a group that satires and lampoons and ridicules a single faith is a really bad idea. Now, here's the other reason strategically why this makes very little sense. The demographics of Los Angeles. So Los Angeles has a huge swath of Catholic population. In fact, 68% of the Catholics in Los Angeles are Latino. They're Hispanic. Um, And 
there's so there's a there's a Hispanic component and there's a Catholic component. The number of Catholics is around you know four million and change. The vast majority of those are Hispanic. The Hispanic community has an extra affinity and extra regard uh, for religious sisters, you know, priests, monks. There's a a greater deference shown in the Latino community culturally for those uh, those figures within the church. So you've got this double whammy of lots of Catholics. You've got a group satiring and lampooning and ridiculing one faith, which is Catholic. You got lots of Catholic in your number one market, which is Los Angeles. And within that, you have the largest percentage uh, are Latinos who by and large happen to be Catholic and have this outsized regard for the very figures that you are satiring, lampooning and ridiculing. That just seems like a really awful mix of things that people should want to stay far away from. Am I suggesting that people shouldn't be allowed in the stadium? Absolutely not. Am I suggesting that Dodgers shouldn't support LGBTQ rights to whatever degree they deem uh, fit for their particular organization? No. I'm saying that singling out and uh, promoting and amplifying a singular group within the context of all of this who happens to focus all of their satirical uh, angst at a single faith in a market like Los Angeles is a real big misstep that makes zero sense whatsoever. So I think ultimately, even though the sort of economics of this thing haven't been visible to the degree that the economics of, say, the Bud Light situation recently have, nevertheless, I can tell you that um, just even the se- sectors that I'm involved in, there's been a real impact, which will no doubt redound to a real economic and audience impact to the Dodgers themselves. Final point on this that I'll say is the Dodgers have now tried to kind of rebound by saying that we're now going to have a rebound rather. Wrong sport. They're going to rebound by having a kind of family and faith night. Uh, I think that's also a bad idea. Okay. Not because I don't value family and faith. I do. I just think that this continued sort of sliverification just made that word up. This slivering up of these different nights for the purpose of supporting different groups leads you inevitably to a point where you satisfy no one. And it also, that's reason number one. Reason number two is it just feels like, what can we quickly do to get these people off our back? And so I disagree with it in that sense as well. So anyway, Dodgers, yeah, not feeling it. think it's a really bad move for your business. I don't think it was really well thought through. And the people involved in uh, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, what can I tell you? Praying for you. All right. Number two, second uh, thing is, second thing, second article is all about the, I guess now you can maybe officially call defunct metaverse. You guys remember when there was a huge rush not that long ago to get behind what people were calling really just the 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 next uh, giant leap forward in evolution in internet in mobile internet really a game change a paradigm shift I mean we saw so many different words touted about that when uh, towards the end of 2021 Mark Zuckerberg from Meta famously uh, kind of rolled out a video that looked very much like some a cross between Minority Report and Ready Player One as this sort of image of what the metaverse could be. Subsequently, there was follow-up with a number of products. The products weren't nearly as interesting as the video sizzle reel that he had shown. And, you know, things started to kind of fizzle out, then enter artificial intelligence at the end of last year in a very big way. And now nobody really wants to talk about the metaverse. So the metaverse, uh, I think we can officially say, is resting in peace. And I think there's a number of lessons here that we can learn from this. First of all, it's, you know, 
being very suspicious about the hype. And there was a lot of hype here. The consulting firm Gartner claimed that 25% of people would spend at least one hour in the metaverse by 2026. 25% of all people would spend an hour in the metaverse by 2026. Bold claim. The Wall Street Journal said that the metaverse would change the way that we work forever. And even McKinsey, oh, our McKinsey friends, even McKinsey predicted that the metaverse would generate, get this, $5 trillion in value, adding that around 95% of business leaders were expecting the metaverse to positively impact their industry. Of course, not to be outdone, Citi, Citibank, put out a massive report that declared that the metaverse would actually add $13 trillion in opportunity to the marketplace in very short order. So none of that ended up being true. In fact, things just kind of mostly fizzled away. And Meta, in a very qu- sort of quiet way, unraveled their emphasis on um, the metaverse uh, recently, as well as other partner companies that were beginning to build things for the metaverse, like you know Disney and others. They've also unraveled their organizations uh, that were focused on the metaverse over the course of just the last you know weeks and months. So this all just blew up massively, whole wave of hype, lots of investor money, all the intelligentsia of Silicon Valley was talking about this, and now we get to the point where Meta itself says, you know what, in their most recent earning report, because they were asked. We're not focusing, we're focusing 100% of our product and dev and future thinking uh, horsepower around artificial intelligence. So simply by saying that, it was clear that Metaverse did not come up in the conversation. And I think that's the reason why we can declare at this moment in May of 2023 that the Metaverse is now officially dead. What can we learn from this? Well, there's a lot of things that we can learn. But I think for me, the most significant one is the idea of having a very clear use case. You know, we think about these grandiose projects and initiatives and ideas and billions of company of dollars supporting it and the the most high profile people in the world touting it and speaking on it etc that doesn't mean we forget some of the fundamentals that in business we need to have in order to ensure or help ensure the success of something namely how about a clear use case how about a real target audience right how about maybe you know willingness to adopt you know or an install base or to actually get customers into that said product the 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 vision of this product was so big it was almost like selling a new reality and the the, the good thing about that is it gets people's attention this is massive it's big would never been done before the downside of us of it is it lacks the kind of specificity that you need in order to actually execute on any product, let alone a product as enormous as the metaverse and all the subsequent, you know, pieces that that went into it, right? I mean, this was a vision that, you know, spanned industries and continents and, you know, every person on the globe and trillions of dollars in market capitalization potential. It was so massive that perhaps they forgot to answer the very simple question, who's going to want this? What problem is it solving? And why is Meta, among others, the proper person to actually do this? Some of that seemed to be missed. Now, look, we're in a little bit of a hype train right now with artificial intelligence. I think the promise of artificial intelligence, because I've used it, is significantly greater than the metaverse, which I've also in certain ways used. Um, but there's still a lot of hype wrapped up in AI, and there'll be a ton of losers and winners, but it does feel like AI knocking the metaverse off of its hype throne is much more well-warranted for AI than it was 
for the metaverse to have held that position. But again, people like, look, we can't forget the fundamentals, no matter how grandiose the vision actually is. And it seems to me that that's what happened in this particular case. Okay, finally, a Target story, also related to Pride Month, but we're in June, so you can expect that kind of thing. Um, Target has, you know, stepped into some controversy of their own, as no doubt many of the people listening to this podcast have also found out, by um, one of their Pride Month uh, exhibits or installations or efforts. And it's centered mostly around a um, summer clothing collection at Target stores and a number of, um, you know, kind of exhibits, whatever you call the place where the mannequins and the new clothing are, that like end cap um, or exhibit where that, that, that was happening in a lot of cases was, as it should be, very prominently placed. I mean, we're getting ready for summer. People are buying bathing suits and beach towels and things like that. And we're also in this pride month of June where marketing tends to take on this uh, you know, this rainbow kind of uh, orientation in some cases. So all of that made sense that these exhibits would be kind of towards the front of the store. But what people didn't count on was the impact that some of that placement would have relative to a few details about those exhibits that tended to catch a number of people, you know, off guard. One of them was product lines, uh, product lines that uh, these were, you know, products for adults. There was a lot of uh, misinformation about these products being for kids, but they were products for adult adults. But nevertheless, products that had terminology that at least looked me as a kind of garden variety person, I wasn't very familiar with uh, terminology like tuck friendly bathing suits, tuck friendly bathing suits. I mean, this is like the fodder of social media gold, right? Even if you support something like tuck friendly um, uh, bathing suits, Still, to have Target, you know, promoting that in the front of their stores is something that a lot of people are going to make a TikTok about. And so, in lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. A lot of this stuff started, uh, you know, going far afield. The other uh, feature of these um, product displays was a line by a company that is run even that is run by a person who um, purports to be, I don't think that's the right way to say it, purports to be a Satanist or fan of Satan or however you want to put it. And even though those particular Satan products, which this company does make, were Satan-friendly products, and they're tongue-in-cheek, but they nevertheless clearly are promoting some version of that Satanistic uh, affiliation, those products were not part of the Target thing. There was a lot of misinformation about that too. They weren't part of it, but nevertheless, this company that does make those was. And so there was a lot of fear around, you know, gee, these folks are making this and do we, are we comfortable with it? Whatever. Anyway, the net result is there was immediate um, reaction by Target that, you know, they ended up moving a lot of the displays in some parts of the country towards the back. And they called a number of internal meetings to discuss with kind of Bud Light in the rearview mirror that they didn't want to go into that kind of territory with this thing. And of course, it's, it's understandable. I've been in many of those situations and you do respond to what's happening out in the world in the context of other things that are maybe similar or trends that we're seeing. So I, it's not surprising to me at all that the management of Target would have called a quick meeting to figure out what do we need to do if we need to do anything, et cetera, et cetera. Now, some serious things that happen around this um, are that there was a lot of people that decided to take out their displeasure on these things with the staff at uh, Target. Now, that's just dumb because a lot of the people, really all the people that you interact with at a Target store have almost zero to do with what you see on the store shelves. 
those functions are, you know, managed by people in, you know, purchasing departments and procurement and executive leadership and all that kind of stuff. So you're really yelling at a person wearing a red shirt, walking in a Target about a product that you don't like, even though it might be sincere that your, your displeasure might be sincere, it's really fruitless and kind of rude. So you shouldn't do that. And there were a lot of people that felt very fearful about what they were hearing. No doubt that there were, you know, folks who were unkind, maybe more than unkind, um, and, you know, I don't know of any reports of violence, but I do know that there were threats of that made to some of the frontline staffers that were there. So that's no good. Now, the CEO and the management team of Target responded to that as well. And they ultimately ended up shelving some of these items from these collections uh, and changing these exhibits themselves because they feared for the safety of their employees, or so they said. Now, I say so so they said because we're kind of in a different moment. We're sort of this post-Bud Light moment where the economic impact that a lot of these things can have are much more significantly understood, I think, now, literally, than, than, it, than they were weeks ago. The, the typical ebb and flow of boycotts or people's angst on social media is they get really hot about something, and then the next thing catches their attention, and they kind of move on. In this case with Bud Light, things have been persistent. I mean, they've lost $24, $25 billion in market share. Their sales are down by about 20, uh, the most recent one was about 29% decrease year over year in monthly sales. They're doing everything they can to give the beer away, promotionally and otherwise. It's taken a real toll. So that's a new thing. And I think people are looking at that and saying, could this happen to me? And there's more cautiousness and there's more carefulness about the response to these things than there has before. Now, I do believe that the the CEO of Target did the right thing. He called it a gut-wrenching decision, but he moved back uh, from their stated position. I don't think that the same about Target is true with Bud Light or anybody else. Uh, Target has been a very strong supporter of LGBTQ, um, uh, you know, movements and and uh, organizations, and that is their prerogative to to do exactly that. And as a consumer, either you're okay with that or you're not, and you vote any way you want with your with your um, you know with your wallet and with your sense of being a customer. So I I think it's different um, where it's much more understood that the 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 things that Target the things in question here the exhibit. Uh, the, the the Pride Month stuff, LGBTQ, that's significantly better understood by the consumer that Target has a dog in that fight, right? So that's that's more in keeping with their voice. So I don't think it's anything like the uh, the issue with Bud Light and how just kind of um, how that whole situation hit a lot of that consumer base the wrong way because I just think Target has more permission in this area than Budweiser uh, has. But um, I do think the most interesting part coming out of this and maybe the lesson is this distinction or a stronger delineation between what is corporate support and what is brand marketing or even brand alignment, right? And the, the example that I mentioned in, in our newsletter this week uh, is the idea that forever, but if you get to go back 10 years and look at the millions of dollars that the Fortune 500 has given to both progressive Democrat causes and progressive Democrat candidates, as well as the same Fortune 500 and the percentages and millions that they've given to pro-conservative um, causes and candidates. That has been happening for a long time. Nevertheless, you usually don't see 
these Fortune 500 companies create kind of campaigns and align their brands to that sort of support. And so I do think that it's an important moment and a time for CEOs and people in executive leadership to ask themselves, what are the definitions around how we view this? What is corporate support? How do we want to you know, spend those uh, corporate social responsibility dollars? And then what is a brand campaign or a marketing campaign or a new product that we want to incorporate that has something to do with this, right? Um, I doubt very highly that we're going to see, you know, um, I don't know, the, you know, the NRA uh, collection of, I don't know, toys or something at a, at a Walmart, despite the fact that Walmart has for years supported a lot of conservative causes that support the NRA. Heck, they might have even supported the NRA for all I know. I have no idea. But I doubt that they're going to run a campaign or develop a set of products around that corporate support. And I think for a little bit of time, maybe over the course of the last few years in particular, the idea of corporate social responsibility and marketing have gotten a bit blurred. Some of that is understandable because uh, consumers want brands to take more of a stand. So, you know, the, the CMO, the marketing side of the equation is paying more attention, but some of it may have just gone too far where it's become almost one-to-one, right? If we support something, ergo, we should market around it. That question needs to be asked again, and a deeper pause, a a longer breath between corporate support and brand marketing should be taken. And I think that that's very prudent, even if you end up doing exactly the same thing you would have done anyway, it's at least procedurally, I think, an important and prudent step for brands to take. So anyway, that's what I think. What do you think? Let me know. Tell me where I'm wrong specifically. Comment um, on social with our newsletter. Comment on Unsiloed. Come check us out at blackbrown.us if you have questions about the way that we see the world and how we look at these complex issues. And uh, looking forward to chatting with you again about whatever the world has to throw us next week. Remember, continue to live your life unsiloed. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.